expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. And joining me from the pack today is our ever-present Carl, the sound guy. <laughs> there's the there's the chortle we all wait for. <laughs> we'll we'll hear many more of those and mistakes. That's Carl's contribution to our show. We have a great show coming. Somebody I'm very excited to talk to. I know I say that from time to time, but Gordon Chang is somebody I follow, somebody I read, and somebody I've seen speak in person, and I find him a great citizen of the world. So I'm excited for you to hear from Gordon. Gordon is an attorney, an author of books, a columnist, public intellectual, you know, kind of like Carl. (laughs) He lived for decades in China and greater Asia, worked for major U.S. law firms, Baker McKinsey, Paul Weiss. He's given expert testimony to many U.S. agencies, congressional committees about U.S.-China relations, Chinese government policy and hostility towards the U.S., relating to economic, social, and military aspirations and their interactions with America. He's particularly known for a statement to the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission, an allegation that Chinese students at U.S. universities are involved in intellectual gathering for the state and spreading anti-domestic ideas, stirring U.S. students to support China through subversive, coordinated disinformation campaigns acting as national agents of China. I guess that's an allegation. In my mind and experience, that is a fact. Gordon has given briefings to National Intelligence Council, the CIA, the State Department, the Pentagon, has appeared before the United States House Committee's Foreign Affairs. He's a former contributor to the Daily Beast. His writings on China and North Korea have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, International Herald Tribune, among others. He's appeared on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, PBS, Bloomberg, television as well as The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. That must have been interesting. We're going to have to hear some background about that. And Gordon Chang has spoken at Columbia, Harvard, Penn, Princeton, Yale, all those higher learning and knowledge of thinking universities that I can no longer stand, even though I speak at most of them too. Gordon's latest book, The Great U.S.-China Tech War. He's also had books, Losing South Korea in 2019, Warning Order, in 2016, Nuclear Showdown from 2006, and The Coming Collapse from 2001. They're all great reads, and I suggest you get into it. So, Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, you know, for our show, just as a, as a primer and a starter, you give speeches, and generally they're very topical. But for here, you know, a little bit of your background to begin with, how you kind of got started in this, maybe as a as a younger man, or how you were informed in your family growing up that led you down this path? My views about China really were informed by practicing law there. My wife and I moved to Shanghai in August 1996, and we were there until May 2001. And when we arrived, we were very optimistic about the direction of the People's Republic. And I can remember my wife getting on the phone and saying, Mom, China's not communist anymore. And I certainly agreed with her. And this is what I heard from my clients who would fly into Shanghai, stay at the Grand Hyatt, which is really one of the most spectacular hotels in the world. And they would tell me, China's not communist anymore. But what happened is, as we worked in China, uh, practicing law, my client was Citibank, we were doing securities deals. As we traveled around China, talked to people, saw what was happening, we got a very different view of the direction of the People's Republic. And since we left, it's only gotten worse. And you left in 2001. May 2001. Yeah. Um, Yes, it has gotten worse. (laughs) I mean, it was a a very different time, but we could see, you know, what's happening today is a natural outgrowth of what was evident even then. My dad um, was born in uh, Rougal, 
which is not far from Shanghai, north of the Yangtze River. And he left China before the communists took over, but he was there during the tumult of uh, the Chinese Civil War, yeah. World War II. And, and that, I suppose, was really the basis of how I feel about China today. But certainly, as I saw it myself, I could see that what he had talked about was indeed true. Well, I, yeah, and you had said in you know uh, previous conversations and such like while your father left in 1945, and 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 thank goodness he made it here. He he never really experienced the full breadth personally of communism, but I would I'd be willing to bet you had a lot. He had a lot of family members that were still there, a lot of friends that were still there. Did any information start to come into him between 1945 and, say, 1960 about what their life was like under communism that helped inform him and then you? I think it was only later um, that um, my dad started hearing from my family, because during that period, China was cut itself, cut itself off from the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and that really sort of made people suspicious of what was happening. But it was only confirmed later on as we began to find out what happened during the Great Leap Forward, for instance, of the late 1950s and early 1960s. And of course, the Cultural Revolution um, that started uh, 1966. So it really was later on. Uh, and, and my dad actually took me back to our hometown, saw our family, saw his friends. And it really was a very different China than, than I had thought. It was poor, but people were happy. And it was a country that um, you could see the effects of communism there. Um, so it, it really was an eye-opening. And, and I, I was there, um, I think it was 1987 for the first time. 87 is when you made it back. Okay, so there were, there were definitely some reforms that had started taking place in the 80s. And you were hopeful. And then going back to practice law in the late 90s, thought, hey, you know, this is my heritage. Let me go back and see if I can help the relationship between these two countries from a legal perspective, professionally. Well, I wish it was that grand, Dan, but yeah. it was really because my primary client when I was in Hong Kong was a guy who was doing deals for Citibank. And he uh, moved to Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And so um, it just naturally gravitated. So I, I really didn't have any grand geopolitical ambitions. <laughs> it was just the work was fantastic. And so um, I followed my client. Do you speak Mandarin? Only a very little bit. And certainly uh, now it's become non-existent. The only way I speak Mandarin is through my wife. Yeah. Okay. Well, you took her with you. So that was good. That was, that was, that was essential <laughs> from, from, from many points of view. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I did. You, did you uh, when you when you first went there to practice law and you spoke very little Mandarin? Of course, your wife did, and you were in legal practice together. Did you find any kind of um, pushback from Chinese nationals? Like, hey, you're Chinese, you don't speak Mandarin. Did they did they look down on you for that? I think maybe a little bit, but for the most part, it was a very different time. There wasn't the arrogance that uh, we see today. It was more, um, I'm glad you came back to China, although I was never there for the first time. But that was what people were saying. And uh, it was sort of um, everyone wanted to get rich. People were very open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing about Citibank then was that it was helping to write the rules for uh, the Chinese financial industry in the security sector. Ah. And you could do that then because... First of all, there were very little precedent, but also because China was open. People, their minds were open. And what we're seeing today, Dan, is a closing of the Chinese mind as they're trying to eliminate foreign influence and foreigners from China. Oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get there. I, I, you and I are on the same page there. But like, I find it very interesting that, yeah, I don't know that, that it's all that different today. You know, Citibank's writing the rules over there. Who better than an investment bank to be writing the rules on behalf of, you know, the world? I'm not sure that's changed. And your experience as a lawyer there for four or five years led you to write a book, your first book, which is The Coming Collapse. You know, that's what you saw in five years. You go there, as you said, with all this optimism, and then you come out with The Coming Collapse. How did you form that opinion? 
I guess because I saw that uh, uh, the system really was not as modern as we first thought uh, when we arrived, and that I didn't think that China system would survive uh, the entry into the World Trade Organization, because then countries would have a greater say in how China behaved and uh, externally. What happened, though, was that uh, companies didn't enforce their rights. The World Trade Organization didn't survive. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> the WTO right now is is really become irrelevant. Yeah. Even though it continues to exist, we don't we don't talk about it. Countries don't go to the WTO for dispute resolution like they once did. It's it's very different. Uh, it's become irrelevant, and I think it's largely become irrelevant. Because China has made it so. Yeah. China just, you know, took the advantage of the rules that benefited it and has not adhered to its obligations. And the dispute resolution mechanism in the WTO actually favors uh, violators. Because what happens is you countries like China will commit a violation. It'll take, you know, years of negotiation. Then countries lose patience, they file a case. Then it takes years to adjudicate it. And there are no costs uh, imposed on a country until there's a ruling against it. And that means for a very long period, a violator can take advantage of just um, ignoring its obligations. Yeah. And that really means that the WTO is, um, you know, we, t we tend to think of a rules-based trade organ, a rules-based system. But the WTO, yes, it does have rules, but nonetheless, it also has important incentives to violate them. And so maybe the world would be better off without a WTO. But I guess that's a bigger topic. Well, I mean, without a current version of it that, that is that is so corrupted, and and China is still an emerging market according to the WTO. You've got the second largest economy in the world, but they're this emerging market, and they get all of those benefits of not being what considered a first world country, I guess, in their eyes. Yes. It's just the WTO just has not worked out. And as I said, that was one of the reasons why China was able to not only game the system, but also, I think, um, be able to last a lot longer than it otherwise would have. China, I don't think, would have been able to sustain itself given the current directions that um, we saw at the end of the 1990s if it weren't for membership, for instance, in the WTO. Because we were there when the U.S. was negotiating with China over the terms of its entry, and that led to the 1999 agreement between China and the Clinton administration, and then eventually to a secession in late 2001. I don't think that it would have been able to continue on the path it had, had it not been for the optimism of WTO accession and its ability to game the system for a lot longer than it otherwise would have. Yeah, you talk about good intentions gone bad uh, with the Clinton administration. And non-politically speaking, if you look back, I mean, you've got the repeal of Glass-Steagall. I mean, what could go wrong um, except 2008? <laughs> right. And then China entering the WTO and Clinton kind of waxing poetic saying, well, you know, if they think they're going to remain the same, let's see them try and control the, the internet. Good luck with that. Well, <laughs> they did. And, and the, you know, the thinking back then when, when you're writing and speaking would have been very right on had China not been so methodical in their five-year plans where our government is more transient and just continue to march forward and really change the world and form the world more in their version. As a, for instance, among one of their many exports that I consider insidious is they export a chill on the freedom of speech like nobody else. Going back to one of your controversial comments about students in universities this is one of the ways they do it. Is, is that not true? They, if you say something that they don't like about China, that student body will go after you. Yes. Well, a couple things. You know, we have seen Chinese students on campus being organized by minders, minders from um, Chinese diplomats in the U.S., but also Ministry of State security personnel who are oh. surreptitiously in our country. And we've allowed this to happen. So this is really our fault. But Chinese students will act in ways to inhibit the free speech of others. 
And, you know, I've got a good friend, for instance, at the University of Rochester, who always tried to put on programs on Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and Tibetans, and was... Good luck with that. Yeah, he was hounded by the Chinese students, but he was also hounded by University of Rochester administrators who were felt that they were beholden to the Chinese students. So this has led to a narrowing of academic freedom uh, where it should be most defended, the, the, our, our universities and our, our colleges. And so you're right about this, about the export of uh, uh, coercion. Well, well, they they don't just attack it from what I've seen, just in, in one direction, right? So they'll essentially buy the university by donating money to it. I think there was a list not long ago about 400 different universities in the United States that had received tens, if not hundreds of thousands into the millions of dollars in contributions. Oh, t- what are you talking about? It's hundreds of millions. Yeah. Pal. And then, yeah. And then with the free speech piece, they're they're attacking the corporations. Look at the NBA's reaction to the free Hong Kong hashtag. You, oh. The one owner who came out, and then it was like boo hoo. He, he was a general manager, but yeah, oh, general. I mean, they, he's he's lucky he didn't lose his job. And then you have you have LeBron James being the you know omnibus <laughs> businessman that he is, schooling us on on international politics. What a dick. <laughs> Well, while we're on the topic of LeBron James, he endorses Nike. Now, Nike, for a very long time, was having shoes made in conditions that suggest slave labor. It has a factory in Qingdao in northeastern China, which was run by and operated by a South Korean company. Now, that South Korean company was a long-term contractor for Nike. And in its facility there, which had which looked like a concentration camp. Uyghurs, uh, and mostly women, were um, producing shoes in conditions which I said, you know, look at least look like forced labor, more likely really was slave labor. And so, you know, Nike would know about this because it had a long-term relationship with the South Korean company. It also, you know, audits its contractors, uh, subcontractors. So clearly Nike was taking advantage of slave labor. And here we have LeBron James, as you say, lecturing us about racism. I mean, this is uh, horrific. I mean, I think LeBron James owes an explanation to the American people, plus an apology. Many, many, many times over. Well, well, Nike's not clear in that either, because look at their statement. uh, We are of and for a person. We are of and for China. China. Yeah. Yeah. It goes with many of our corporations. And, you know, I've said and just recently again tweeted last week, and, and I actually had talked to the State Department about this after a debate at one of the think tanks on Huawei. Why we're debating Huawei, I have no idea. It's not debatable in my mind. But the strongest foot soldiers that China has in the United States are Fortune 500 companies uh, who don't want anything to change. They want to make next quarter. I mean, you even look back at Apple when, you know, Foxconn being one of their biggest suppliers and Foxconn had a pretty big problem with people jumping out of the buildings and killing themselves. And how do they solve the problem? They don't make the conditions at Foxconn better. They put nets on the second floor. Uh, so, so you have to go hang yourself in private, you know, like, you know, uh, a good slave. It goes on and on. Well, yeah, it goes on and on because recently it was revealed that an Apple supplier, Lens Technology, was involved in, in, in Xinjiang, the region where there's China's committing crimes against humanity, including genocide. And so Apple was taking advantage of essentially forced labor, maybe even slave labor um, through Lens Technology. And Apple had to know what was going on. It had a long-term relationship with lens technology. And Apple, like other companies, they audit their suppliers. So here again, a woke company telling the American people what they should think and do about issues of racism, taking advantage of forced labor and perhaps slave labor. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's all crap from them. And you look at our, our crackdown has begun, you know, whether you liked him or not. And I, I'm not a big fan of him personally, but it, it started under Trump. Right. And to Biden's credit, he's continued it. And, and I hope he gets even stronger with this. Uh, you look from 2019 to, to, to now, China's exports to the United States have gone down something like 24 percent. Vietnam's have increased 31 percent. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm wondering how well we're sourcing where that material from Vietnam is actually coming from. 
because it seems to me and from everybody I talk to in country that that is the end around that Beijing is just shipping through Vietnam now and we're kind of turning a blind eye and not really looking at the original source of the material. Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. I have a good friend in the furniture industry who has actually documented this transshipment. And it's something that, um, you know, is obvious and Customs and Border Protection needs to take stronger action. Now, in the last year of the Trump administration and continuing through uh, the Biden administration, they are seizing more goods uh, on the basis that they're the product of forced and slave labor. So that's to their credit. But they have not nearly scratched the surface because we've got this transshipment problem through Vietnam, which we've just been talking about, plus others. So clearly, although the trend is in the right direction in terms of enforcement policy, we're not anywhere where we need to be. No. And it seems to it seems that we're complicit. I mean, really. Absolutely. We're better than that. You know, going back to even the the. Uh, state security officials on campus that are here surreptitiously. I mean, who are they here surreptitiously for? I mean, like maybe the students, uh, you know, the white students there don't know that they're state security, but our government does. (laughs) They know who they are and they allow them to stay. And to a large part, administrations know who they are, who's organizing these student bodies and they allow them to stay. I, I, I don't know if you know Paul Gillis, He's a he's he's a great professor and he uh, teaches at um, Peking, I believe University. Peking University, yeah. And he's on our show, a wonderful guest. And he he talked about the fact that he can talk more about China and the Tiananmen Square and whatever else at Peking University than he can guest lecturing at Stanford. He he would just get shouted down there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We've had administration in, administration out, know what's happening and not taking steps to stop it. You know, we've allowed, and this is a related issue, we've allowed Ministry of State Security agents to engage in what's called the fox hunt. In other words, running down supposedly corrupt Chinese officials in our country and persuading them to return. This has gone large scale and, you know, we haven't done very much about it. So this is, this is on us, because this is our country. We don't have to permit this. And we have permitted it. A large part of this blame is, look, it, you know, past presidents, a series of presidents who haven't done anything or not done nearly enough. Well, at least the last four. So, yes. And like, as a private citizen, Gordon, as I am, what is your likelihood percentage-wise that you are being electronically monitored personally by China. That's a hundred percent. Yeah, me too. You know, as Matt, <laughs> yeah, as Matt Pottinger, who is yeah. the deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration, just said a couple of days ago in his uh, testimony before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence that uh, basically China has enough information to create a dossier on every American. And there was another Trump official there who said eighty percent of all Americans have had all their personal data stolen. And the other 20% had most of their data stolen. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I would, my dossier is pretty big with them. Uh, I imagine yours is even bigger. Uh, and at some point, you just give it, like when the FBI comes to my office, and not from the regional office, right? They flew in from parts unknown to say that I'm being surveilled by China. And they need all my computers. Fine. I give them to them. Now, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, there's no answer that comes back. We're just, you know, I mean, what, what can they say to me? They're, I haven't heard from them in two years about the situation, but I knew I was being surveilled for 10 years. And for you who are listening to this that think you're all that different than Gordon or I, you're not. You, you, you're still of some value to the party. And you, you look at these, even these um, DNA uh, heritage tests that you get. Where do you think that information goes? Do you think they don't want that? They do. And you sign that away when you go to heritage.com or what is it, you know? 23andMe. 23. I don't don't sign up for any of that. Ancestry.com. Yeah. I mean, where do you think that stuff goes, Gordon? Well, we know where it goes because there were at least 21 Chinese or Chinese-linked companies that were certified to provide DNA sequencing services to the the 23andMe and others. So they they obtain it that way. They also obtain it by just outright theft 
Also, there are other means where China takes the DNA profiles. Matter of fact, Dan, if you want to find the world's biggest collection of profiles, DNA profiles of Americans, you're not going to find it in the U.S. It's actually in China. Sure. That's and insane. we've allowed this. So, for instance, we allowed China to buy complete genomics, which had a num large number of profiles of DNA of Americans. We allowed them to buy something as innocuous as GNC, which also had health records of Americans. So this is on us. We could have stopped these purchases, but we did not. So yeah, the Chinese are villains, but we've permitted them to be villainous. We've said, in effect, come on, take it, steal as much information as you want. Use it for your biological weapons program. We don't care. Not that I'm going to defend China here, but I will point out that they have a view that is propagated over there. And one is that, you know, we're thieves, you know, we come over there and, you know, we take their, their products cheap and we're happy to economically exploit them. We charge them more to be listed on our exchanges. So, you know, I've, I've talked to some of these CEOs have ripped us off because, you know, I expose them, but from time to time, there is a conversation and they're like, you know what, you ripped me off the whole way here. <laughs> The whole way, you know, from from your legal teams to your, you know, your finders to your bankers, everything gets charged more and we're ripping you off, too. And that's the kind of bad relationship we have with them in actuality. I mean, I think we we really need to focus on the humanity of the situation and really. I mean, we're being treated much worse, no doubt. But it's not as if we're innocent in all this, too. Yeah, well, there are many elements in American society that have been pro-Beijing. Um, it's Wall Street, it's Walmart, um, big companies, political class, and uh, the American people need to say they've had enough of this, that they have enough with China, and they've had enough with the Americans who have sold out their country. And that's essentially what's happening right now. The American politicians and Fortune 500 company CEOs, the, the you know, the the Citizens United ruling in and of itself does open the door for foreign investment into politics. I mean, yes, if you're a foreign agent, you have to, you have to register. Yeah, wink, wink. But if you're, if you're an American company that has you know, a 10% ownership stake in a China-based company, but that China-based company with that 10% ownership stake flows through 25% of your profit, the bottom line, where are your allegiances? Are you, is it to America or is it to the shareholders in your mind? And then you have a pack and you donate to, to politicians and, and they know this, they know how it goes. They, they're playing that game much better than we are. Which means, you know, this may sound drastic to people, but we could lose our country. And the only way we're going to get it back is to eliminate China's points of contact with us, because China exploits every point of contact to overthrow our government. And that's what they're trying to do. So until we get a handle on this situation, we do have to stop trade, stop investment, stop technical cooperation agreements. And I know that this is not politically acceptable right now, but the consequences for us can be dire. Well. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think we're going to get some help with that. I think Xi Jinping, the emperor himself, is, is going to help us with that because, you know, you know, we worked on, you know, nominally what would be called the China hustle since 2012. I was lobbying Congress on the dangerous structure of VIEs, how nobody really owns a share in Alibaba, things, was, and a complete surprise to them. Also was a surprise that... You know, a Chinese citizen cannot be prosecuted here, even if it's CEO of an American listed company for financial crimes. And, and now they're on television like they're exposing this, which cracks me up. But what came out of that is this watered down legislation, which is something right. Holding foreign companies accountable act. It's certainly not what I would describe as robust, but it does at least say, hey, we need to be able to audit the financials. And if we can't audit the financials, you'd be delisted in three years. And you would think that just on auditing, China would give in to that, but they're not. And actually Xi Jinping 
is speeding up this process of getting the companies delisted and bringing them back. And he's kind of making it his narrative rather than being kicked off. He's pulling them off. And I'll take it one step further. As, as I've said, China has a five-year plan that they publish, but they also have a 10-year plan, a 15-year plan, a 20-year plan they don't publish. And they have one of those for us too that they don't publish. And taking over Hong Kong meant taking over the Hong Kong exchange. And it allows them to bring these companies back there first, where they have the liquidity and the market that they don't necessarily have in Shanghai or Shenzhen. And I think that's the process, ending it with what would happen if these companies were still listed here as they try to take Taiwan. They would lose them anyway. Yeah, well, what's happening, and, and you put your finger on it, um, Xi Jinping, for his own reasons, is cutting the relationship with the United States because he does not want um, his Chinese companies owned by Americans or foreigners. So as you're saying, he, he wants to bring them back into Hong Kong and even better to bring them into Shanghai or Shenzhen. And part of this is, as, the, as I mentioned, the closing of the Chinese mind. This is a China that believes that it doesn't need anybody else. And Xi Jinping, who reveres Mao, is doing his best to push China back to a Maoist system. He doesn't have the power to do it, but uh, as the most powerful figure in the Chinese system, that's where he is pushing China. And as he does cut these links with us, he is reducing or eliminating um, economic incentives of Americans to support China. So in a sense, you know, you're absolutely right about this. Xi Jinping is doing our work for us. The other thing that Xi Jinping is doing is because he believes in a state economy, he is adopting policies that are restricting China's ability uh, or reducing China's ability to create growth. And so we're seeing a stumbling economy. We're seeing all sorts of problems inside China that he cannot solve. And ultimately, this means that as China becomes less important to um, Americans and others, it means then that better instincts of the American people will actually start to take over. This process might not happen fast enough, but at least we can see that things are moving in the right direction. I worry, though, because as Xi Jinping lashes out, he could take us by surprise. I agree with you. I just don't happen to think that he's lashing out as much as he's executing a plan. And that this plan understands a coming conflict. You know, and, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about a nuclear war with the United States and China. It's not out of the question or that they're invading the U.S. or we're going to get involved in a land war in Asia, which is number one on the list of things not to do. But having these companies listed on a foreign exchange with a coming conflict that I believe is Taiwan would be very detrimental to those companies anyway. And getting them to Hong Kong, which is, is not their ultimate landing spot. I think you're dead on right about that, Gordon, that you know, it's where they can be now, where the liquidity is for them to trade now, but eventually wants to move them all back in mainland and would like nothing more than Hong Kong in the next 10, 10 or 20 years to become a jungle again. And nobody worries about Hong Kong. They're a port city. They're no longer a financial relevance. And in that process, like, yeah, when he says, when Xi Jinping says he's going to take Taiwan, I don't think he's screwing around. I don't think he's one of these guys that just kind of goes out there and throws out these kind of, you know, uh, threats. I think he means it. I think he wants it to happen in his time. Uh, and, and that means five or 10 years. I mean, what do you think, Gordon? Oh, absolutely. You know, we Americans are, are very good at ignoring what our enemies say about us. Right. We did that with Osama bin Laden. We're doing it with China right now. Xi Jinping has been very clear about what he wants to do. He's been explicit about Taiwan, but he's also been um, clear about what he intends to do with the rest of the world. For instance, in his July 1st speech, marking the centennial of the founding of the Communist Party, he said, He's going to crack skulls and spill blood of those who stand in the way of China's ambitions. In other yeah. words, his ambitions. And then he said something else, which didn't get quite as much. 
And then he said something else which didn't get quite as much attention, but is, I think, even more ominous. He said, quote, the Communist Party of China and the Chinese people, with their bravery and tenacity, solemnly proclaim to the world that the Chinese people are not only good at taking down the old world, but also good in building a new one. And what he's making a reference to is the views of the Chinese emperors that they had the mandate of heaven over Tianxia, or all under heaven. In other words, China is the only uh, legitimate sovereign state in the world, which means that the United States and everybody else should view themselves as colonies. And this is breathtaking to Americans. But if you listen to what Xi Jinping has been saying, and he's been saying this now for more than a decade, and if you listen to what his underlings say, which is even more explicit, we have to be concerned that China is trying to take away our sovereignty. And last year, Dan, what we saw was China actually inciting violence on American streets, which is an attempt to overthrow our government, which is more than just subversion. It's actually an act of war. And we Americans... So is the cyber hacking. So is the cyber hacking, where they steal hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. intellectual property each year. Uh, John Radcliffe, when he was still director of national intelligence last December, wrote that Wall Street Journal op-ed where he put the amount of annual theft at almost $500 billion. Some people put the number a little bit lower. Some people put the number a little bit higher. But we're talking about a half trillion dollars of U.S. intellectual property stolen every year. And here again, going back to what you were saying, we permit this because we're not taking actions to stop it. They've stolen that much on our capital markets from fake companies as well. And that's that's probably a low number. But going back to fomenting violence. Yes. And 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 stealing intellectual property. Yes, of course, everybody knows that. But now they've proven that they can do things like shut down an electrical grid. They can shut down food supply things like uh, like JBS and and we have officially accused them and said you've done this, but we're, we haven't gone far enough to say look this is an act of war and I'm I'm going to be talking to a, a counterterrorism expert in the coming weeks and my question is that if they can do something like this that could potentially kill millions at least thousands. Why are we not putting them on a capture and kill list like Osama bin Laden? The people that are doing this with a keystroke, why are they not accountable? Great question. And and to put this in the context of the events of today, just a couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration publicly accused China of the Microsoft exchange hack and also said that uh, criminals involved in ransomware attacks in China we're working hand in hand with the Ministry of State Security. Now, this should not have been a revelation to people. No. But the reason why this is important is because the Biden administration has not imposed any penalty right. on China for this. And actually, at the Aspen Security Forum, a high-level Biden official, she said, look, we didn't do this because we couldn't get our allies and friends and partners to agree to any series of punishments. Um, she said we couldn't get a consensus. This is wrong. This is a crime against the United States, and we allow it to go unpunished after we publicly call it out. It's crazy. Because somebody in Europe says, no, I'm not going to let you do it. This is absolutely wrong. Yeah. Angela, Angela Merkel's always going to say no. I mean, she's always going to say no. And Macron's not much better. So, you know, that was something that was pointed out in the last administration as well. I mean, look, if we're, you know, if we're only allies when you want something from us, are we really allies? And and you're right. From for us to say, okay, we know who did it, we know what you did, and now you know here's our foreign policy. This is actually kind of like Obama Part Two, which is, please stop this. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, if please and thank you were a foreign policy, you know, they would be great at it. But there has to be consequence. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and there there isn't the Obama administration. The Trump administration and now the Biden administration has revealed indictments of uh, Chinese military and other hackers. But those people will never see the inside of a federal court. Yeah. And and this is I, I guess it's signaling saying to the Chinese, we know down to the desk in Beijing who is doing this, but we look feeble. 
And um, this is this is our fault. Um, China's going to continue to ravage our networks until we impose those costs. Dan, you talked about how um, China can shut down a grid. Well, they actually did that in October in Mumbai. They they turned out off the lights. They can do it there. They can do it here. Now we can do it too, but we are not imposing any costs on China. So this is our fault. The American people should be enraged. Well, I mean, this is why the your your book is so important. Your latest book, the tech war, they've stolen enough tech and forced uh, technology transfers with enough of our companies. They've really caught up to us. If they haven't passed us on some things, I think. I don't know, 2019, when I looked at this, the, the biggest investor in AI was Baidu, which we fund on our, our exchange. And AI, along with quantum computing, along with CRISPR technology, along with any of these things that are frontier technologies, are what made America different from Russia in the Cold War. And 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 what and part of what won it for us, right? And and China knows that. They know that technology and having that ahead of us is vital to their future. And they're spending a lot of money on it. A lot of seven percent of their GDP, I think, right? Some big number, but they are with great determination um, doing this because the government has all sorts of plans. You mentioned the five-year plans, but they're also the Made in China 2025 initiative and the Digital Silk Road. <laughs> they, they don't talk about that anymore. They, that was they bad don't PR. talk about it because it's a WTO violation, yeah. um, but they still are implementing it. Oh, hell yeah. And they've got other plans on AI and the rest of it. And, you know, you're absolutely right that we're funding this. So, for instance, Google has a partnership with Tsinghua University, which is often called China's MIT, yeah. uh, a partnership with Peking University, China's Harvard, and a standalone Google AI center in Beijing. All of those are working on AI. Yeah. And we permit this. It's absolutely wrong. And every bit of that code is available to the Chinese Ministry of Defense. I mean. All of it. Yes. Uh, if it's because of the doctrine of civil military fusion, everything that Google has in China is available to the Chinese military. And that's true for biology um, cooperation agreements that we have. It's true down the line. China's military has access to everything. Yeah. We'll get to that in just a sec. I, j I just want to say that here's the version that I envision. You know, one, China's uh, Belt and Road policy is, has taken them to the east coast of Africa. They're getting to the west coast of Africa. They're going to leapfrog from there to South America and start screwing with us in our hemisphere. The way they see us in the South China Sea, they're going to want to be in the Caribbean. They're going to want to be in the Gulf. They're going to want to be in our hemisphere. And they're already making those alliances in South America. And we're not strengthening our alliances here in our hemisphere the way we should to keep them out. The fact that Taiwan is, is a flashpoint, I mean, look, we can make them pay a very, very huge price. But I think they realize that we're not going to go to war over Taiwan. Um, <laughs> we prob I don't know what we would do. But one things we can do is we can deter them, so that yeah. doesn't happen. Well, and and it's been consistent policy of administrations to deter China over Taiwan. And up to now, we've obviously been successful, but deterrence is breaking down, and we know deterrence is breaking down because at that meeting in Alaska in the middle of March, China's top two diplomats oh, that that went well. <laughs> yeah, that went well. China's top two diplomats came not to have a meaningful dialogue with Secretary of State Blinken or National Security Advisor Sullivan. They came here to lecture us. And Yang Jiaxiu, who's the number one guy, actually said the U.S. is no longer in a position to talk to China from a position of strength. And what he was saying was essentially deterrence no longer exists, that China can do what it wants and that we can't stop them, which is an extremely dangerous situation, especially in the context of other developments that we've been talking about. So, yeah, deterrence is breaking down and nothing ever good happens when we can't deter 
a large militant state. Yeah, I, well, look, I mean, it's not as if we'd be fighting them in our hemisphere, right? So, and for us to think that they can't sink a carrier in the Straits of Taiwan is ridiculous. They absolutely can. I've talked to former admirals who, you know, don't want to say it out loud, but they're like, yeah, they, I mean, of course they can. Now, that would be an escalation of war. That would definitely cause a big situation. But when you talk about deterrence, you know, these carrier groups used to be a pretty damn big deterrent. I don't know that they are such a deterrent to them anymore, especially off their coast where they're very reachable. And this has become a, a huge problem for Japan, who, you know, had that pacifist kind of constitution now, and now they're really stuck because, you know, Koreans aren't super fond of them based on history. China's not super fond of them. And uh, they're not in a really big, powerful position militarily. Yes. Well, the carriers, American carriers, would certainly not go to the Strait of Taiwan. And they would be hundreds of miles away from Taiwan. And so it would make their air wings basically useless in a conflict. We would have to rely on other things. And in war game after war game, we lose regarding Taiwan. We always lose. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than this. But yes, this is the military balance of power has changed decisively in China's favor. Now, there's some reasons why, despite all of the threats, Xi Jinping would not uh, launch an invasion of Taiwan. But nonetheless, this is becoming extremely dangerous at this particular time. And we have a Pentagon that is not prepared to fight. <laughs> One of the most troubled institutions in the U.S. is the U.S. Navy. And it's not just a question of, um, well, culture wars. It's also over a period of time, uh, the Navy has developed a risk-adverse culture. We've had those two collisions of the Arleigh Burks about yeah. four years ago, Yeah, both of them fatal. We had the, the uh, fire uh, last year of the Bonhomme Richard. This is a Navy which is broken, very broken. They can't build a ship these days. And they're, and they're really based on legacy technology more than anything else. Y yeah, it is legacy technology, but there's also another problem, and that is the Navy, and this is also true of the Air Force and, and other branches of the military, want to start taking down their legacy platforms, as they call them. In other words, their existing planes and ships, in order to fund the modernization of the next generation of weapons. The problem is, if we're going to fight China, we're going to be fighting them soon. And there, there are a lot of reasons for that. So we need every F-15, no matter how old. We need every Arleigh Burke. We need every sub that we now have. We need more munitions stored. We need you know, the capability to go to war at any moment, because I believe Xi Jinping has incentives which really lower his threshold of risk. Right. Fortunately, there are other things that uh, might motivate him not to do these things, but nonetheless, we can't count on them. And that means we have to be prepared and have the mentality in the Pentagon to fight tonight, which is the motto of U.S. Forces Korea. That has to be the motto of every branch of the military, and it's not. And NATO, because quite frankly, we're going to have to fight on two fronts. I, I fully envision a flare-up started by Putin that distracts, that becomes something big and takes resources from us. And that is an opportunity for China to do things that they want to do here. When we're distracted, helping NATO and, and have less of an effort, or we'd have to pull away and let Putin have his way with, I don't know, Latvia, Estonia, whatever, who should have never been part of NATO to begin with. But they're working together. Putin is giving up Russia's future 20 years from now, but I don't think he cares because he's not going to be around. Yeah, and, and that's the important point. We see a growing coordination between Moscow, Beijing, and we also see it with Pyongyang and Tehran. And it can happen in one of two ways, that they plan to all fight at the same time, or you know, China gets into a scrap with some neighbor and Russia decides to take advantage of it and pressure Eastern Ukraine, 
The Iranians go after Israel. North Korea goes after South Korea, either with or without coordination. This will spread overnight, literally overnight, and the world will be engaged in conflict continent from continent. Wow. You are my most feel-good guest of the year. <laughs> you win. World War Three, any minute now. And well, look, I mean, you, you've got to be, you've got to have people that can talk about, you know, a, a bleak future to be prepared. I mean, you know, never seek war, always be prepared for it. And we haven't even talked about the viruses and how this is. I mean, what I've kind of learned from from this virus, and whether it's developed in a lab or not, I. I believe it was, but that's fine. It it showed that they had more control over a much bigger society during a pandemic than we do of ours. Now, it also showed that the partnership between public and private sectors here in the United States is still very robust and the way to go, and capitalism really got the vaccine done well ahead of the rest of the world, but it fomented so much dissent here, which they were a part of that they're able to tap down on with their communist system. Well, they are a totalitarian or a semi-totalitarian system. It's, it's no longer authoritarian, Dan. Xi Jinping is wants a totalitarian system. Um, he's not quite there yet, but he's moving very fast with his great firewall, uh, nationwide social credit system, 626 million surveillance cameras, and all the rest of it. So. In a sense, if you believe lockdowns work, and, and that's a whole other story, but if you believe lockdowns work, yes, uh, hardline societies are better able to deal with diseases. But that's only part of the story, because even though China had a head start in developing vaccines, none of its five vaccines today is particularly effective, and they haven't even been proven safe. Whereas the U.S., starting from a much later time, was able to develop three vaccines which are effective and which are safe. Right. So really what we're seeing is, as you talk about this public-private uh, public partnership, uh, Operation Warp Speed, this worked, and this shows the strength of our system. The weakness of our system, though, is that clearly China took steps to deliberately spread this disease beyond its borders. So the 4.2, 4.3 million deaths worldwide, the 616,000 deaths in America, it's, this is murderous. Yeah, I mean, do you think they should pay for that? I mean, financially? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have failed to acknowledge that as a society. We've been attacked. We've, we've lost 616,000 Americans, and we're not doing anything to impose those costs. And the reason that we absolutely have to do this is because forget about issues of compensation. Forget about issues of justice. We need to deter China. Yeah. We know that China's working on pathogens that uh, they call, quote, specific ethnic genetic attacks. That means pathogens that will leave Chinese people immune, but will sicken and kill everybody else. I guess that's why 23andMe's data is so important to them. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's also the reason why China prohibits the transfer of DNA profiles of Chinese out of China. Yeah. So if we don't deter China, the next bug from China or the one after that could be a civilization killer. Yeah. It could leave China as the world's only viable society. Oh my God. Now, I'm not saying that China has succeeded in developing pathogens of this sort, but we know from the writings of Chinese military researchers, they've been working on this for years. Yeah. And we've got to assume that they're going to get there at some point, and we're not defending ourselves. Well, well apparently we're funding it if you read through some of the emails. We are funding it. We well, are. we are funding it because um, the National Institutes of Health, in a grant administered by Dr. Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, funded Echo Health Alliance, a New York NGO, which was transferring the money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we know from, and, and Fauci said in his, his Senate testimony in May and July of this year, that he didn't fund any uh, gain-of-function research oh, at the good. Wuhan Institute. But there were published papers, two of them, 2016, 2017, which clearly showed that NIH and NIAID money was being used to fund gain-of-function research on bat coronavirus at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So that means that Fauci either knew or should have known. So if he didn't commit perjury in before his Senate, in his Senate testimony, then he exposed that he was negligent 
in administering grants. Criminally negligent. Now, I think he knew, but but that's another story. Yeah. Either way, he should no longer be where, uh, working for the federal government. And look, I'm not trying to pick on Fauci. You know, because there's there's for every one of him, there's, you know, thousands behind him that 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 are involved as well. And he's just that kind of puppet they stick up there that's got to answer the tough questions. But, yeah, I mean, they of course, they're working on gain of function. It's it's been written. They know that. And I think at one point they came out and said, well, you know, how do you know? Well, they gave us their word. They wouldn't do that. Cool. (laughs) Cool. They gave you your word. That's all right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, last three major viruses, SARS and the bird flu and everything, it's, it's coming out of China. And one happens, two is, you know, is, is more than coincidental. Three is a trend. I mean, that's just all there is to it. And we need to be prepared for that. And it's not that we don't work on this stuff as well, but we need to be prepared for anecdotally for what's coming next. And if we know they're doing that, and we do know, as a, for instance, in the CRISPR technology, and combined with quantum computing and AI, they are making better humans, I guess, in their view, right? That's, that's a known fact. Yes. Professor Hu Koi of the Shenzhen University of Science and Technology actually was the first to use CRISPR to gene edit human embryos that created live births, the twin girls in late 2018. Right, to edit out like HIV or something innocuous. Yeah, I was just about to say, uh, you read my mind. He said that he was doing this to make the girls less um, susceptible to HIV, but there are also suggestions uh, from his editing, uh, gene editing, that he was trying to make the girls more intelligent. This is eugenics. This is Third Reich type stuff. And yes, um, he was uh, jailed, but that's only because of the public uproar that have followed his announcement. Because this stuff is being done in other places in China. Of course. They're doing some really dangerous research. On, 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 on live people, right? They're gene editing now people who are alive. Like, you know, you know, Carl, there's hope for you. They can make you smarter, right? They'll, they'll go in and gene edit you while you're alive so that, you, you know, you don't chortle and make, you know, comments that are irrelevant to a conversation. Oh, I was thinking in my head like uh, the island of Dr. Moreau. They're right. making, you know... How many things how many things have we envisioned 20 or 30 years ago and and then you know in cinema and they be I mean like Star Trek had these communicators right that you could talk, do they look like cell phones to you I mean today they do I mean and that was in the 60s so yes they they are doing that and it's a pretty scary thing that we're not again doing anything about it back to kind of a theme that Gordon has talked about is that this is on us. We allow it. And even when it comes to this virus, when, if you talk about laying blame, well, then you're a racist, you're a nationalist, you're, you're a bad person for saying, I just don't want this to happen again. And the best deterrent to that are consequences. Absolutely. And, and that we're not imposing those consequences. And this is just across the board. People don't want to do this. I mean, they don't want to do it for a number of reasons. Um, some of them just because they have a financial interest in China. The others because they have this misguided notion of Chinese communism. But pick your reason. They're just the United States is not defending itself. And history is going to look back at us and say, who were these people who knew what was going on, who had the means to stop this, but decided not to do so? Yeah. Well, Gordon, I've had you on for over an hour now. And, um, you know, I want to be conscious of your time. But I, I think my listeners and would like to know, and if they don't want to know, I don't care. I want to know. <laughs> what do you think are the top three, four, five major steps we should take in the next, you know, as you said, we don't have a lot of time. So I've got to, I've got to really truncate this to a year, two years, three years to prepare. Well, in general, I would cut off all investment, all trade, all technical cooperation. And I realize that that is not politically acceptable. You would do that overnight? You would just like, boom? I would do that overnight. Wow. If I were president of the United States, I would invoke my powers under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977, or I probably would make a designation that China is an enemy and, impl- and apply the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917. 
But I know that those things are not politically possible. But there are certain things that we can do. So, for instance, we need to cut off all federal funding of parties in China, especially that coming from NIH, which I think has pretty much stopped the flow. But we also need to impose these costs on China. For instance, I think that we should vigorously enforce our rules about the importation of goods into the United States that are the product of forced or slave labor. And I don't care if it's an Apple iPhone. I don't care what Tim Cook says. He's been using lens technology. That means anything that incorporates a lens technology component doesn't get into the United States. Sinjong cotton, anything made of Sinjong cotton, that doesn't come into the U.S. Chinese tomatoes from Sinjong. Again, sorry, but uh, people will have to go without ketchup for a little while until we develop other tomato fields. But these are things we need to do. If China doesn't allow our apps in China, which it doesn't, then、mm -hmm. we're not going to allow Chinese apps in our country. So goodbye TikTok, goodbye WeChat, goodbye all the rest of it. I mean, if if we can't sell the New York Times on a newsstand in Beijing or Chengdu, well, we're not allowing China Daily to sell on our streets. And you know we can't be on their cable networks. They can't be on our cable networks. The issue of reciprocity just go down the line. Right. And one other thing, and that is, we start tossing out their consulates, closing them down because they've been engaged in conduct which is incompatible with their diplomatic status. We cut down the embassy staff to just the ambassador, his family, personal guard, and a couple secretaries. We don't need hundreds and hundreds or thousands of people in Washington D.C. You know the list goes on.、Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, no Confucius Institutes, no Confucius classrooms in our secondary schools. They all go. Yeah, well, I, I think the, that's more important than most people do because they they really have already affected a generation of you know millennials and 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 what they're doing now. But you are not going to be very popular with General Motors, Tesla. <laughs>、uh, you know, I mean, Unilever. any Unilever, yeah, any of them. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't reach out to them for、uh, grants. But <laughs> yeah, you happen to be right. <laughs> you, you yeah, I don't, right. I don't,、uh, I don't consult. I don't.、Um, not looking for grants. It doesn't cost very much to have a Twitter account. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I just, just the last word on this part of it. And and I I think that's all very sage advice and would, whew, we'd get some pushback out of Europe there. I, I'm just I'm just thinking about you know, the capitulation there. But again, nothing worth doing is easy. When you talk about the Uyghur Muslims and and China and really the genocide or you know the forced labor and you know taking out their religion, isn't it interesting to you? That one of the most totalitarian Islamic regimes in the world, Iran, right, chooses to do business with them. You think they don't know what they're doing to the Uyghurs? They do know, but they choose to do business with them rather than us. And I think that's because China doesn't meddle in their affairs. They don't meddle in China's affairs. China doesn't meddle in their affairs. It's all commerce. Yet. We can't stop dropping bombs in the Middle East, like like it like is an it's an addiction, and it hasn't really gotten us anywhere. Our Middle East policy should be rooted in, hey, if you screw with Israel, we'll we'll end you, and we can do that from anywhere. We don't have to be there. But not dealing with some of these regimes like Iran, Syria, or whoever, really has not been to the benefit of the United States. Not engaging with them. Oh, Dan, you reminded me of something. Another item for the action list, which is to go to the International Olympic Committee and say, if you don't move the Beijing Olympics next year, the Beijing Winter Olympics 2022, that、um, we're boycotting them. Also, I believe that we should be promoting the idea that、uh, Chinese teams should be banned from Olympic competition. And that we will not participate in any Olympics where there's a Chinese team. And the reason is, in 1963, the IOC banned the participation of South African athletes because a significant portion of the South African people were not permitted to engage in sport. Apartheid. What、yeah. China's doing to the Uyghurs, Tibetans, Kazakhs, and others is far worse than what South Africa did with apartheid. True. So 
we cannot um, participate in Olympics where Chinese athletes are because this is just wrong. We have an obligation under the Genocide Convention of 1948 to prevent and punish acts of genocide. And if that means anything, it means not supporting the Beijing Olympics of 2022. Fine. But why do, why do strictly militant Islamic countries prefer to do business with China than us? Um, because of economic relations. Well, we, in the case of Iran— We have a um, product where that's concerned. Uh, they do, but um, hardline regimes like other hardline regimes, for reasons that go well into issues of uh, nuclear weapons proliferation— I mean, Iran has a nuclear weapons program, thanks to Beijing. There's all sorts of other linkages there that means that Iran can overlook um, China's atheism. Okay. All right. Well, look, you're, you're fascinating. I could, I could do another three hours with you. You know, hopefully we will do that in two different other segments. When you want to come on to talk about a, a specific issue that you think an audience of largely financial losers listen to <laughs> you have an open invitation you're you're just fantastic people should follow you they should buy your book they should follow you on twitter and you know it's about free speech it's about freedom it's about our principles it's not about racism we have no problem with the people of china but the regime itself and the fact that we're monitored as individuals and what they're doing to us. Nothing that Gordon has said here has been guesswork. Like it's all been fact-based in your research. Is that correct, Gordon? Yes. I mean, um, it's a personal failing, but I actually do like to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe we'll crisper edit that into Carl. <laughs> so give us your Twitter handle. How can people follow you best? That should come from you, not me. You know best where you want to be followed. I'm on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang, G-O-R-D-O-N-G-C-H-A-N-G. I archive all my articles for free at www.gordonchang.com. And yeah, I'm on your it. show. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Gordon. And, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Give us a retweet. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. 